Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. If you turn to Hebrews 7, verses 11 through 19. Now, if the perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to rise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one name after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom things were spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection, connection with the tribe of Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on one hand, a former command is set aside. Well, good morning. Feels like summer out there, huh? We are returning to Hebrews this morning. So welcome, everyone. Uh, Glad you're here. Uh, We are... uh, Some of you, if you were here back in the winter, spring, you remember we started a study through Hebrews this year, and we hit uh, end of chapter 6, and I decided to take a break for the summer, and uh, we are coming back to it, though, this morning after a fun study in Ruth. So I'm glad you're here this morning. Well, as we come back to Hebrews this morning, I I, I do want to pick up with that video. I want to start with the video we just watched. Uh, it's a powerful testimony. I could hear it in the, in the, the gasps and the, the sighs around the room as we watched that. It, it, it's encouraging to see how the Lord is working. And I want to tell you, I want to start by telling you what I liked best about that testimony. What, what I liked the very best was the way Jesus is at the center of the whole thing. It's a very Christ-centered testimony. That woman who we watched, she did not convert to a different culture. She didn't convert to a different philosophy. She converted to Jesus. He's the one. He's at the center of her story. Uh, It starts with this vision that she has while she's praying, and she doesn't even know who it is, but this figure in white appears to her. And then uh, the the Holy Spirit works, and this person leaves a Bible, right? And she she picks up this Bible, and she starts to read, and, and it's all about Jesus, right? That's what grabbed her attention was Jesus. And then this acquaintance comes that she, you know, has barely, barely doesn't even know super well, was the impression I get anyway. And this person's a Christian and begins to tell her about Jesus and invites, well, why don't you come to church with me? You can learn about Christians there. So you've got this vision, you've got the scriptures, which of course are the heart of where we learn about Jesus. And then you've got this acquaintance, an invitation to a church. And you got to tell why I love this part, because it's a church, right? It's a church there that tells her about Jesus. And, and that's where it clicks. That's where she he comes to know him. And so there's these different steps, and we all have our own versions of that story, but there's these different steps, but Jesus is at the center of each and every one. And that, believe it or not, is the point of the next four chapters in Hebrews. Jesus is at the center. He's at the center of our salvation. Now, the author of Hebrews is going to come at this from a very different direction, but it's the same idea. 
We're not saved because we have the right philosophy or we live in the right country or we have the right culture or the right anything else. We're saved because of Jesus Christ. It's all about him. When we left off in Hebrews a few months ago, we had just finished chapter 6. So we did the first six chapters back in the first three or four months, well, four or five months of the year. And uh, chapter 6, you might remember, I'm going to recap a little bit here. Uh, chapter 6 was a little bit of a detour, actually. It was a little bit of a detour in the author's argument. Uh, back in chapter 5, the author had introduced this idea that Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus is our great high priest. It's, actually, it's, I say chapter 5, but it had started in chapter 4. Uh, chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest, he says, writing to mostly Jewish converts to Christianity. So this is very important to them. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. It is Jesus, the Son of God. And because we have him, he says, let us hold fast to our confession. It's a key verse, Hebrews 4, 14. Let us hold fast to the, our confession of Christ. And, and, and when he says hold fast to our confession, he's talking about our faith, our faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the confession is. And he says you should hold fast to your confession. It's an interesting link he makes. Hold fast to your, your faith in Jesus because he's your great high priest. Hold fast to him because of that. And then this is back in chapter 4, 5. Uh, the author starts to develop this idea, help us understand. It's really important. So he starts to help us understand what it means to say Jesus is our, our great high priest. And then we get to chapter 5, verse 10, and he brings in this guy Melchizedek. Right? And I, just, I wanted to read it for you just to kind of situate all this. So chapter 5, verse 9, being made perfect, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obeyed him. That would have been enough for most of us, but then you get verse 10. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so a lot of us, we didn't see that one coming, but now he wants to talk to us about this, this man. We're like, Mel who? Melchizedek. But before he got into Melchizedek, do you remember how he kind of paused? So chapter, chapter 5, verse 10, he says, I'm going to tell you all about Melchizedek. And then he says, but I don't know if you can handle it. Right, you remember that? And that's uh, chapter 5, verse 11, about this, I have much to say, but you're dull of hearing, he says. You can't handle it. And then you get this, this detour, I called it. Chapter, the rest of chapter 5, all of chapter 6, is an exhortation to hold fast. Hold fast to Jesus. And, and so there's this whole emphasis on, it's actually a warning. Chapter 6 is a warning, do not fall away from Jesus. Don't settle for an immature faith. Don't be weak in your faith. Instead, hold on to God's promises. Trust in Jesus. That's chapter 6, right? That's the message of chapter 6. And I will take this opportunity, since we're coming back to the series after a break for a few weeks, a few months, I'll remind you this is actually the message of the whole book. It's really driving how I'm coming to Hebrews as we're studying it together. The whole book is about holding on to Jesus. And, and that's, I've titled this series as Enduring Courage. Uh, there, uh, by way of context, the book of Hebrews. Why do we call it Hebrews? Uh, most scholars think it was written to Hebrews, to, to Jewish Christians. So they were Jewish ethnically. Most of them would have been grown up in Judaism, but then, then, come, then they had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's who he's writing the letter to. This letter, it's a letter, is written to Jewish believers. But we know both from history and from hints in the book that they were facing persecution. The persecution was amping up. It gets worse in that first century of the Christian church. The persecution keeps getting worse. It kind of dips a little bit sometimes, but, but it keeps getting worse. And some of these Christian believers, these Jewish Christian believers, were thinking about going back. 
That's the context for this letter. See, Judaism was relatively safe. It was one of the few officially recognized religions in the Roman Empire. It was relatively safe to be a Jew and practice Judaism in the Roman Empire. But as the Romans began to figure out that this Christian thing was different from Judaism, as they started to realize that, the Christians started to be persecuted more. And so they were persecuted by fellow Jews who didn't know Jesus, and they were also persecuted by Romans. And so it was tempting for some of these people, not all of them, but some of them were thinking about going back. They were thinking about quitting on Jesus and going back to the law, going back to the old system, the old covenant, and all the rest of it. And Hebrews is written to say, don't do that. Don't give up. Don't give up on Jesus in the first century. Don't give up on Jesus in the 21st century. Instead, hold on. Hold fast to Jesus. And, and chapter 6 really emphasized that for us. It was, the, the, I don't know if it was the third or fourth, I can't remember now, uh, a warning telling us, don't go back. Don't give up on him. Which brings us to chapter 7. So there's our review. Uh, as we get to chapter 7, it's actually the beginning of a new section that runs for the next four chapters. So it's chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. And there's a, a, a single thread, I think, that ties these pretty theologically dense chapters. This is probably the densest part of the book, but there's a single thread and a very important message that ties chapters 7 through 10 together, and it is that Jesus is worth any sacrifice. That's what he's showing us in all of this. Jesus is worth any sacrifice. He's worth whatever cost we have to pay to follow him. That's why the woman in that video was willing to give up her family. Did you catch that? Eleven generations in, in, in Buddhism, and not just kind of low on that totem pole where where you are hierarchically is very important, but many of her family members were leaders, they, they, lamas in the monastery and so on. She, she gives all of that up. Why? Because Jesus is worth any sacrifice. Chapter 7 shows us this by giving us one of the reasons. And we're actually going to look at another one in chapter 8 and another one in chapter 9. That's kind of how it works. But, but it, what chapter 7 does is it gives us one of the reasons he's so worthy. And the, the reason here is his, his priesthood. Jesus is the great high priest of the greater priesthood, of the better priesthood. That's the message of chapter 7. And I know most of us, maybe all of us, don't have a Jewish background. I don't know if we have any ethnic Jews in our church. Uh, and so you might say, well, why does this matter to us so much? But it matters because we cannot be saved without these things, right? So we're going to talk, we're going to talk a lot about Judaism in chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. You have to. Uh, but, and so you say, well, I'm not Jewish. Why does this matter to me? But it matters because we can't be saved. We cannot be saved without the stuff that these four chapters teach us about Jesus. So today we're going to talk about the better priesthood. That's the emphasis. It's a big section. I'm actually covering the whole chapter. So we're necessarily sampling, but I hope that by the time I get to the end, you'll have a good overview feel for this chapter, and then you could go into it deeper if you wanted to do so. Uh, but I, I want to give this overview of why Jesus is the high priest of the greater priesthood. And we're going to take it in two parts. Uh, first, I want to show why his priesthood is better. And for that, we need to talk about Melchizedek. And then I'm going to show how his priesthood is better. And for that, we're going to talk about four pretty practical in the end, pretty, pretty important ways, four ways his priesthood is better for us. And then it's better, better than the Levitical priesthood. So that's kind of how we're going to come at this. So, so first things first, let's do the why. Why is the priesthood of Jesus better than the Old Testament Levitical priesthood? Why is it better? And the answer has to do with, you heard him, Melchizedek. 
He goes back to our friend from chapter 5, which he, he now goes back to him. He left off in chapter 5, verse 10. Now he comes back, Melchizedek. So let me, let me read. We're going to read all of the text one way or another this morning. So I'm going to go back to the beginning of chapter 7. Let's start reading about Melchizedek. Verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. And to him, to Melchizedek, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, uh, Melchizedek, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Melchizedek is literally king of righteousness. Melchi is Hebrew for king, and uh, Zedek is Hebrew for righteousness. So that's what that means when it says that. He is first, by translation, king of righteousness, and then he's also king of Salem. That is, king of peace, because Salem means peace. Now is where he was the king. He is, verse 3, without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So let me stop there. We'll read some more in a few minutes. Have you ever wondered why Jesus did not work as a priest in the temple? Have you ever wondered about that? I mean, maybe not. We get so used to reading about Jesus as a teacher, maybe you've never wondered about it. But if you, if you think about it, why didn't he? I mean, under the old covenant, the, the temple was the centerpiece of Judaism, right? I mean, it was super important. Remember, you know, Exodus and Leviticus and chapter after chapter after chapter about how to build this thing and all the clothes the priests wear. I mean, really, the, the whole priestly system executed of offerings executed in the temple is really the centerpiece of, of Judaism. Why didn't Jesus work for a little while as a priest? And the answer is that Jesus is a priest but he's a priest of a different priesthood. So he's not part of the Levitical priesthood, which was the ones who were charged with taking care of the temple. Yes, he's a priest, but he comes from a different priesthood. Which priesthood? Well, I didn't even know there was another priesthood, you say. Well, yes, here comes our friend Melchizedek. He was a priest too. And so the priesthood of Jesus is better. For those who like to write stuff down, I'll put this up here. Um, Why is his priesthood better? It's better because he's not a Levitical priest. He's a Melchizedekian priest. He belongs to the priesthood of Melchizedek, and that priesthood is better. Which, and the author's going to get a lot of mileage on making this argument to us, right? So, and that's what we have to look at this morning. The priesthood of Melchizedek is better, and that's the one that Jesus is part of. And you end up kind of, it's kind of a funny thing, because there are only two priests in this priesthood. There was Melchizedek, and then there was Jesus. And so, it's, but it's better. This one is better. So let's talk about him. Let's talk about Melchizedek just a little bit. Uh, he's kind of a mysterious figure. If you want to read about him, you can, read, you can do so in Genesis. It's Genesis chapter 14, kind of the middle of that chapter. Uh, he, he actually served, so he's an interesting guy because he served in two offices. He was a priest, we're told explicitly in Genesis, but he was also a king. He was a priest and a king in a place called Salem. Salem, a thousand years later, David will capture Salem and rename it Jerusalem. So, again, it's a thousand years later, but Salem is this little city at the time, which eventually is, is Jerusalem. It's the same place. So Melchizedek is the, is the king and the priest of what you and I know as Jerusalem. He was a contemporary of Abraham, so he lived the same time as Abraham. And we read in Genesis 14 about a war. There was this time when Abraham fought a war. And I know we don't always think of Abraham that way, but he did. 
Uh, and it, it wasn't because he was a warmongerer. He did it to rescue his nephew. So his nephew Lot was living in Sodom at the time, uh, a different group of kings. Uh, that's why it's, it talks about the battle, the slaughter of the kings. A different group of kings attacks Sodom and Gomorrah and takes a, they, they defeat them, actually. And they take a bunch of hostages and a bunch of treasure, and they run, this other group of kings. And Lot gets kidnapped. Basically, Lot is taken as a hostage. Abraham hears about this, and he rushes off with an army of about 300 men to save his nephew, and he succeeds. He, he takes them out, and with the Lord's help, uh, he, he defeats these enemy kings, and now he's on his way back to Sodom and Gomorrah to put everybody back where they belong, but he takes a detour, and he goes to Salem. He goes to Melchizedek. And it is not clear why. It's not clear why in the Genesis account why he feels the need to go to Melchizedek, but he does. He goes and visits Melchizedek. Melchizedek blesses him, which is huge because this is Abram we're talking about. This is Abraham, right? The father of the whole Jewish faith. And Abraham goes to this guy, Melchizedek, and he does two things. He receives a blessing from Melchizedek and he pays him a tithe. So Abraham pays money, 10%. A tithe is 10%. So Abraham gives 10% of all this treasure that he just captured. He says, here, Melchizedek, this is for you. And it's a sign of submission. That's what a tithe does. It's a, it's a sign of of, of, of surrender or submission or of recognizing the other person's authority. And that's it. That's the story we get in, in Genesis chapter 14. And he's never mentioned again. You never hear about Melchizedek again except in one verse. There's one verse. It's in Psalm 110, verse 4. Psalm 110, verse 4, quoted several times here in Hebrews, says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, talking, God talking to the Messiah, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Only other place outside of Genesis and Hebrews where you read about the guy. Psalm 110, verse 4. So why is he important? Why does it matter? Well, it's because his priesthood is greater. And that's what the author of Hebrews is going to make so much of. His priesthood, his priesthood, according to Psalm 110, verse 4, the Melchizedek priesthood is the one that the Messiah is going to fulfill. The Messiah, ultimately, we'll understand it's Jesus, will not be a Levitical priest. He'll be a Melchizedekian priest. There's actually four reasons for this, and I, I decided not to put any of this up on slides, but there's actually four reasons the priesthood of Melchizedek is better, is greater than the, than the priesthood of the Levites, and I'm just going to tell you what they are without spending a lot of time on them, but I, again, I want you to have a basic understanding of the text, but, but first let's read some more, right? So before I give you these four reasons his, his priesthood is better, uh, but I wanted to read. So pick up with me from verse 4. I'll read through to 10, because then there's a change in, in 10. Verse 4 says, See how great this man, talking about Melchizedek, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from the Levites, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. And in, the case, and in one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one whom, of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes from the Jews, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So I'll stop there. Four reasons that the priesthood of Melchizedek is greater, in case we need to be convinced. And if we're Hebrew Christians, we do need to be convinced. 
Reason number one is that Melchizedek is both a priest and a king. The Levitical priests could only be priests. There are no instances in the scriptures of a Levitical priest who could be a king. In fact, whenever they tried to mess up the two, when a a king tried to act like a Levite, for example, um, there would be trouble. But the Melchizedekian priesthood is both a priest and a king. And you can see where Jesus, right? It's so important. Jesus, it's easiest to see the connection with Jesus here. Jesus is the king of all kings, right? He's the king of kings. So much is made in the gospels of his descent from, from King David. And so Jesus is a king, but he's also a priest. And you can only do that in the Melchizedek priesthood. And so that, it's better for that reason. Reason number two that Melchizedek's priesthood is better is that the office comes straight from God. And there's a, so it comes straight from God. It's not inherited. It's appointed by the Lord himself. That's a key piece to this whole argument. And the author makes a lot in chapter 7 of the fact that the Levitical priesthood was hereditary. And so he's going to talk about genealogy, and he talks about you know, all of this stuff. Um, in the, under the old covenant, the priests were chosen because they were related to the priest before them, right? So it was hereditary. It had nothing to do with whether they were godly men which is why you have so many stories in the Old Testament about ungodly priests. Think about Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, in, uh, in, first, in first Samuel, the first two chapters. They were priests. They were in line to be the high priest, but they were lousy, lousy guys. That's the Levitical priesthood for you. It's hereditary. It's not directly appointed by God. But the, but, but the Melchizedek priesthood is a direct uh, it, it's not genealogy, it's a direct appointment. And that's what verse 3 is talking about, one of the more confusing verses. I wanted to highlight this one. Verse 3 says Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy. Uh, that does not mean Melchizedek was uh, divine. It doesn't mean he was not human. There have been some who try to interpret that way. Some people will tell you Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate form of Christ. I, I don't think that's the right interpretation. Uh, it calls him a man in verse 4. It says this, this man. Melchizedek is a man. Uh, and so, but, so why does it make, <clears throat> make much of this fact that he doesn't have a genealogy? It's because he didn't come to his priesthood because of his mom and his dad. He came of his priesthood because God just made him a priest. God just made him a priest there in, in Salem. <clears throat> and so you have that, and that's going to be true with Jesus as well. Psalm 110, verse 4. I say to you, you are a priest, right? I make you a priest forever, just like I did with Melchizedek. So it's better for that reason. Number three, his, uh, Melchizedek's priesthood is greater because it does not end. It does not end. It's eternal. Again, verse 3, uh, resembling the Son of God, Melchizedek continues a priest forever. Say, wait a minute, how, does, how is that possible? So, uh, the Levitical priests died. So what our author is doing is he's making a contrast here with the Levitical priesthood. The Levitical priests died, every single one of them. They all died. And in fact, again, that's how the priesthood gets passed from one to the next. And think about your scriptures, right? Have you ever wondered, reading Exodus, I think it's an Exodus, or maybe it's a little later, it's probably later, uh, when, when Aaron dies, you get a lot of attention paid to the death of Aaron. Why? To show the death of the priest, that the, the Levitical priests die. Melchizedek, in contrast, we're never told. Now, that doesn't mean he lived forever. It doesn't mean he can go find him hiding in some cave somewhere in Palestine. That's not the idea. But the idea is that scripturally, from the Bible's vantage point, he has neither beginning nor end. We're never told how he came into office. We're never told when he ended. We're not told anything about that. And so in our reading of scripture, Melchizedek just is. 
And, and that's how the, the, a Jewish reading of this passage uh, would, 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 how you would take it. He just is. He never died. He had no beginning. He had no end. And all of that is meant to, pre- to, to prefigure. It looks ahead. Why did God do it that way? He did it because of Jesus. All of that was a setup to when Jesus would conquer the grave. Right? So yes, Jesus was crucified. The Romans and the Jews took his life. He, he gave his life. But then on the third day, central to the gospel, on the third day, he rose again, never to die again. And that, here in Hebrews 7, we're told, that is one of the reasons he's qualified for the Melchizedekian priesthood. He now continues in his priesthood forever. And so that makes it better as well. And then the third reason uh, it has to do with this whole thing where the author emphasizes how Abraham submitted himself to Melchizedek. And therefore, that means the Levitical priesthood is submitted to the priesthood of Melchizedek. And so, again, and we don't usually think about things this way, but verse 7 says the, the, the inferior is blessed by the superior, right? And so the superior person confers a blessing on the, on the inferior one in, in, in that understanding of things. And so Melchizedek blessed Abraham. So this is Abraham recognizing that Melchizedek is, is greater than he is. Abraham also paid a tithe to Melchizedek. So again, Abraham recognizing the authority and the superiority of Melchizedek. And then he makes this connection. Levi was in his loins, uh, which is to say Levi was a descendant of Abraham. He would be Abraham's great-grandson. And, and so Levi also, in his great-grandfather, Levi also submitted to Melchizedek. Levi also uh, paid tithes to Melchizedek. And Levi, of course, is the tribe the whole Levitical priesthood comes from. They, are the, they all had to be Levites. And so, again, we don't tend to, to think this way. We live in a highly egalitarian culture, right? I mean, tithes functioned a little bit like taxes. Not exactly, but a little bit. And I'm sure no one in this room thinks that, you know, the IRS is superior to them, right? Because we pay our taxes to the federal government or the state government. It doesn't work that way in our brains, but in a, in a biblical framework, that idea that Abraham's descendants paid a tithe to Melchizedek shows that Melchizedek is greater. His priesthood is greater. And so that's the argument that the author makes here. Again, I'm just trying to help us understand, have some hooks to hook this all on, but the message of it, what it comes down to, is Jesus is a great high priest, right? Chapter 4 and 5, but when I tell you that, he's not the great high priest of that lesser priesthood. He's the great high priest of the greater priesthood. This is the thing we need to see. So, so it's all of it's elevating. We're getting Jesus up higher and higher and higher. Uh, he, he's the great high priest of the greatest priesthood of all. And so, so that's that case that's made to us there. Now I come back to the why or the how. I mean, well, well why should we care? <laughs> why should we care about any of this? And, and that's really what the rest of the chapter is about. The rest of the chapter, he's kind of teasing out some of the, the ways that it's better. And so here we'll talk about the how the priesthood of Jesus is better, where you and I as followers of Jesus benefit from this and in the benefit from it, why he, is so there, why he therefore is so worthy. So, so let's talk about four ways the priesthood of Jesus is actually better. What, what does it do for us? Well, for one thing, it introduces a better law. So the priest, because Jesus, the priesthood of Jesus is greater than the priesthood of the Levites, that puts Jesus in a position to bring us and to, to inaugurate, to introduce a better law for humankind to live under now. And this is the main point of verses 11 through 19, right? So I, and uh, it was the text we heard before. I'm not going to read it again, uh, but, but that's the case that's being made here. 
Jesus introduces a better law. The Levitical priesthood and had a problem, all right? So the Levitical priesthood had a problem. And when I say it had a problem, that doesn't mean it was bad, right? We're gonna, it's the same thing Paul says about the law in Galatians. The law is not bad, right? So, I mean, the, the priesthood was a gift from God. He gave it to the Israelites on Mount Sinai. So it's not that the priesthood is bad, but it had a problem. The Levitical priesthood had a problem, and the problem was that it didn't work. The problem was that fallen human beings could not become righteous through what the Levitical priesthood had to offer. It didn't work. It didn't it didn't work. That's what verse 11 means when it says perfection. You heard it before. Verse 11, perfection is was not attainable through the Levitical priesthood. And then he says, if, if it were, if, if people could have become righteous with the help of the Levitical priests, we'd have been all set, right? If we could have become righteous under the law that the, that the priesthood administered, we, we wouldn't need Jesus. But it didn't work, right? He calls it useless and weak, weak, weak and useless in, uh, in verse uh, 18, right? Verses 18 and 19. Uh, the old commandment, it says, uh, had to be set aside because it was weak and useless. It had to be set aside because it was weakness and uselessness. The law made nothing perfect, it says in verse 19. And so in the end, uh, the sacrifices, think about the sacrifices that the priests and the Levitical priests offered. They, they were temporary at best, right? That they, they, they were not ultimately effective. They only removed the stain of sin for a little while. That's why they had to be repeated day after day, month after month, year after year, generation after generation. They had to be repeated. And so they couldn't deal with the stain of sin. They also could not deal with the disposition to sin, the inclination to sin. There was no power under the law and under the old priesthood. There was no power for obedience, which, and and if you need proof of that, all you got to do is look at the history of Israel, right? The history of Israel was one long story of moral failure. And, and you say, well, aren't there exceptions? Great heroes of the faith. Yes, there's great, there were absolutely exceptions. We're going to spend three weeks with the exceptions when we get to chapter 11. Yes, there were exceptions. But the exceptions prove the rule. Because the exceptions were exceptions because they didn't live by law. They lived by faith. Chapter 11, verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. That's how you please God. It's by faith. It's not by law. And so those who tried to do it through law, they, they fell helplessly short under that old law. But now along comes Jesus who introduces a new law. And we're told, it's a wonderful little statement that's made in verse 12. When there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law. Because the priest's job is to, one of his jobs is to administer the law. So you got a new priest? Well, then we get a new law, the author tells us. And this law, the law of Jesus, is better. And he talks a lot about how it's the law of righteousness. Melchizedek is the, the king of righteousness. Jesus now takes up that mantle. Jesus is the king of righteousness. Um, Paul gave it a name. The Apostle Paul gave it a name in Romans 8, right? Paul cuts to the chase sometimes. Romans 8, 2, through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life. That's the new law that Jesus introduces, the spirit of life in Christ. Through Christ Jesus, the spirit of life set, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. And in Roman, that's, Romans, that's Paul's name for the, the Old Testament law. It couldn't, it couldn't cleanse us. It couldn't remove the desire to sin. And so why is Jesus better? Why, why is, is the priesthood of Jesus so much better for us? The priesthood of Jesus puts us under a better law. Now we're under the law of the spirit of life in Christ, no longer under the law of sin and death. Number two, the second way his priesthood is better is that it also offers a better hope. It's a better hope because of Jesus. And that's verses 18 and 19 specifically. It's kind of the, the tail end of the part about the, uh, the better law. 
Let me read those two verses just so they're in our heads. <laughs> For on the one hand, he says, this is verse 18, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. That's the old law. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, the new law, a better hope is introduced. So the, the, the high priest administers a better law, which introduces a better hope through which we have better access through which we draw near now to God. And so we now have access to God through Jesus Christ. And that is better. That is a better hope than what we had before. Think back to the Old Testament. You've probably at least familiar with it. Some of you have read it a lot. But under the Old Covenant, there was very little personal access to God. Right? And the best example of this is probably the temple itself. In the temple, there was a room. They called it the Holy of Holies. Scripture calls it the Holy of Holies. This innermost room. And in that innermost room, there was a, a thing called the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was the throne of God on earth. That was how Scripture laid it out, and that's how the Jews thought of it. It was a little piece of heaven on earth. And I don't mean that in a sappy, sentimental way. I mean literally and spiritually. Uh, God would descend into that innermost room, and that's where the people of Israel would meet with him most directly, in that innermost room. And no one could go in there. <laughs> no one could go into the room where God was. The exception was the high priest, one man, once a year, for a few minutes. That's what access looked like under the Old Covenant. One man, once a year, for a few minutes could go in and approach the throne of grace, could come to God. Under the new priesthood, under the new covenant with Jesus, now we draw near to God. Now we can come right in up, to, up close to him. We talked about it, it was, I think it was in chapter 4, back in the spring, and here's this idea again. We'll actually talk about it more in chapter uh, 9, I think it is. Uh, it, it's a whole new thing. Now we can come right into his presence, thanks to Jesus Christ. We can draw near, the author says, for forgiveness, for comfort, for joy, for peace. Right, are you struggling with anxiety? Draw near. Draw near uh, to Jesus. He, he's the one. He's the king of Salem. Salem in Hebrew means peace. He's the king of peace. And so we have all of that. We have access. We have the better hope of better access to our God now under our new priest. If you prayed this morning, if you prayed this morning at all, right? maybe, maybe you, you said, good morning, Lord. Maybe you said, thank you for waking me up. Maybe you said, Lord, I don't want to get up. <laughs> I don't want to, I want to stay here in my nice cool bed today, Lord. Uh, if, you, if you prayed at all, that was a meaningful act because of this right here. I know it's dense. I know there's a lot here that's hard to understand. But if you prayed today or yesterday, that was a meaningful thing to do because of what chapter 7 says. If Jesus is not our great high priest, you're just talking to the ceiling. You're having a conversation with the air if Jesus is not our great high priest. But because he is... Your prayers are meaningful. Our prayers are meaningful because, because of Jesus. So that's number two. Number three, the priesthood of Jesus is better because it guarantees a better covenant. I actually referred to that a minute ago. Uh, it, it's a better covenant. Now, chapter eight focuses on the better covenant. So most of what we'll say about, we'll, we'll get next week. We'll, we'll come to the better covenant next week. In fact, I think I should have said earlier, a lot of the things I'm saying this morning are going to come up again in the next three chapters. So I'm kind of, it's another reason I'm giving myself permission to kind of hop along the top here instead of going deep on these. Plus, you'd also, I'd lose, no, no one would be able to stay with me that long. But, uh, but we're going to come back to the new covenant next week. But he describes it in verses 20 and 22. He kind of sets us up for chapter 8. If you just look in your Bible, he says, for it, if, for it was not without an oath that this priesthood was, was inaugurated. For those who formerly became priests were made priests without an oath, but this one was made a priest, Melchizedek, and then Jesus 
with an oath by the one who said to him, and then you get Psalm 110 quoted, the Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You, Messiah, are a priest forever. And then this key verse, verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And so, again, we've talked about this already. The Levitical priesthood was hereditary, right? It was, it was just, you just inherited it from the guy before you but not the priesthood of Jesus. The priesthood of Melchizedek, the priesthood of Jesus, that one comes on the promise of God, and that's this word oath. God himself says, I make you my high priest, and therefore I make you qualified, and, and all the rest of it. it all comes into that. And so it's God's promise, not anybody's performance. It's God's promise, and of course Jesus fulfills the performance, but the point is God guarantees it. God guarantees it. And, and then you get this connection with the covenant. So this is a better covenant. The better priest inaugurates a better covenant. Like I say, chapter 8, we'll talk about why it's a better covenant. It's written on our hearts, right? It's not an external rule that's imposed on us. Now it's, it's a desire and, and a, a Holy Spirit-gifted uh, desire to live for the Lord and the power that comes from within because he now dwells within us. It's a completely different shift under the new covenant. It's written on our hearts now, it says in Jeremiah. That's going to be quoted in chapter 8. So it's a better law, it's a better hope, it's a better covenant. And then finally, uh, the, the priesthood of Jesus is better because it is all centered on a better mediator. And that actually brings us back to where we started. Brings us back to where I started a little while ago. Jesus is at the center of it all. That's what makes his priesthood better. He's there. He's the heart of it. And we actually see this in the last part of the chapter. Let me read it. God's words are better than mine. More important than mine, too. Uh, So picking up from verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, the Levitical ones, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. So he had no sins of his own, so he didn't have to offer sacrifices. And so he offered himself once for all. Verse 28, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, God's promise, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The key, one of the key jobs of a, of a priest, maybe the key job of a priest under either covenant is to mediate. The priest served as a mediator between the two parties to the covenant. And so under the old covenant, the high priests, the Levitical priests, were mediators between God and the Israelites, right? They were the go-between. That's what a mediator is. If you, you know, had a conflict with somebody and you didn't want to you know, go to court, you could hire a mediator. And that mediator would talk to this one, and then he'd talk to this one, and then he'd talk to this one, and, and he would mediate, or she would mediate between the two people. Um, that's what a, a priest would do. And under the old covenant, the, the high priest and all the priests mediated between God and the Israelites. And they weren't very good at it. They, they weren't very good at it, right? We've, we've already said this a few times, right? I mean, some of them were better than others, but, but even the best ones fell far short. They weren't perfect in the way Jesus was. They fell short, even the best one. Think of Aaron, right? Mo, the brother of Moses, uh, the first high priest, and arguably, I think he, the scripture would bear out the greatest. Aaron was the greatest of all the Levitical priests. And yet even Aaron made some pretty big mistakes, right? Golden, golden calf, anyone? Even, even Aaron made some pretty big mistakes. 
but not Jesus, not the Melchizedekian priest. He didn't fall short in any way, which is, then gives us the last paragraph. That's what that last paragraph's all about. Our new high priest is holy. He's innocent. He's unstained by sin. He's separated from sinners, it says in verse 26. And that doesn't mean he avoided sinners, right? It means that he kept himself sinless even as he walked among us. So he was separated from our, from our sin. And therefore, he's exalted. Right? In contrast to the Levitical priests, they would just die, and they'd die, and the next one would die, and the next one would die. In contrast, Jesus is exalted above the heavens. That's actually where Hebrews starts, Hebrews 1.3. He made purification for sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Or if you prefer Pauline, Pauline Philippians 2.9. God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that's above every other name. And so our great high priest is holy, he's sinless, he's innocent, he's unstained, he's exalted, and all of that, all of that makes him better. He's the better mediator because he had no sin of his own to atone for, and therefore he was free once and for all to atone for our sins. And so Jesus, Jesus is worth any sacrifice. It comes back to that message of the book. We should hold fast to our faith in Jesus because he's the great high priest of the better priesthood. I actually want to leave you with a parable. I want to close with a parable. And at first, when I tell you which parable it is, at first you're going to tell me there's no connection. <laughs> there's no connection between these two passages. One is a very short parable that Jesus told, and the other one is a dense, uh, a dense chapter, a chapter-long passage about the priesthood. But I actually think they have a lot in common, these two passages, not so much in the content as in the emphasis, what, what they emphasize. The parable that came to my mind is the, is the parable of the valuable pearl or the, the pearl of great price, it's, a, it's called a lot of times. Uh, it's found in Matthew. It's Matthew chapter 13, verses 45 and 46, and Jesus is teaching. And here's what he says. Uh, he, he says the kingdom of heaven, but he's talking about himself. Right? So here, here's what he's saying about his kingdom. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. And so the idea there is that Jesus and his kingdom and his good news is so wonderful, so valuable, so beautiful that it's worth any sacrifice, right? That's what happens in the parable. He sells everything else he has to buy this one pearl. And this, this, I love this little parable because it, it's very easy for people to connect to because we're all looking for that pearl. We're all merchants. We're all pearl merchants in the, in the language of that parable. Everybody's looking for something. Right? And for, for some people, and they're all looking, well, what's that thing I'm going to fix my life on? For, for some people, they settle on achievement or, or success in their, in their field or, or fame, right? Such a, a big one these days and, and renown and, or even notoriety. People will settle for notoriety as long as people know their name. For some people, that pearl is entertainment. For some, it's just wealth. And for others, it's love and romance. For others, it's family, you know, kind of a more traditional kind of family and, and a wholesome kind of a, a lifestyle that way. For others, it's experiences, right? I want to grab as much as I can before I die and, and, and just experience things. And, and those are all good things in their way, right? They're all pearls. That's the thing about pearls. Some pearls are more valuable than others, but they're all pearls. And, and all of those are, are pearls. But the point of the parable is there's one pearl that outshines them all. In fact, it's, it's so much more valuable, it so much outshines all the other ones that it's worth more than all the other ones combined. Right? Did you catch that detail in the little parable? He, he found it, the one that is the kingdom of heaven, the one that is Jesus, he found the one pearl and he said, get rid of everything else so that I can have this one. That's what he says. 
And so the message in that little parable is that Jesus is worth the sacrifice. Next time you're reading through Matthew, Jesus is worth the sacrifice. Hebrews 7 says the same thing. Goes a lot deeper into the why, a lot lot deeper theology sort of stuff, but, but it's the same basic idea. We should hold on to Jesus because he is worth any and every sacrifice we need to make. So I'll end with this. If you got up this morning and found yourself wondering if it's worth it, I wonder if there aren't some listening to this. You got up this morning and you found yourself wondering if following Jesus is worth it. Maybe you're facing some crisis in your life and it would just be easier to walk away from him. Maybe there's some temptation. Maybe you're just worn out. You're just tired and worn out. Lord, I just don't know if I want to do this anymore. Whatever it is, if somewhere in the deep places of your soul, you've been wondering lately if Jesus is still worth it, my job to end is to tell you that he is. He is absolutely worth it. Yeah, I know it's a complicated passage, but in the end, the message is as key and as simple as could be. No matter what happens to us, no matter what cost we have to pay, Jesus is worth any sacrifice.